Okay, so what we are doing today is uh, looking at what's called the natural law. Um, and we're only going to do one week in this. If this was the 501 course at theology level, we do three, four weeks, I'm sure, on this. It's a, it's a big thing, generally speaking, in moral theology. But because we're doing all of moral theology from the catechism in this one course, we're just doing a single taste, so to speak, today. But basically what I want to do is I want to try and, you know, you've read the text from the Catechism on this, but there are lots of words in the Catechism there that are just very briefly said, and the, the significance of them, it'd be easy to not really grasp. So there's three words um, I want to be sure we understand the relationship of. Nature, reason, and law. Um, and to understand why these are related. So we're talking about the natural law, so nature and law, we would kind of therefore expect to somehow be in the mix. But reason, this is the big thing that kind of connects them. Now those of you who've have you done church history at college level? Breathe on. World history, but not church no. history. Okay. So when you do the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that um, they separated from us on was the question of the, the power of human reason. So Calvin in particular had this notion that human reason is corrupt, that it cannot be relied upon. And obviously there's a, an element of truth in that, as there is in every heresy, that we make mistakes in our thinking. But the Catholic vision is that reason in itself is good, is a gift from God, and is capable of leading us to all kinds of truths. Not the fullness of the truth that we know in Jesus Christ with supernatural revelation, but that reason can know truths, a great many truths, and for the moral life, Actually, reason is capable of figuring out all of the basic requirements that the Almighty requires of us. So we'll come back to this in a bit, but the Ten Commandments. Reason can figure out every one of those. You don't need to have the Bible to know that you should honour your father and mother. You don't need to have the Bible to know that you shouldn't murder. You don't need to have the Bible to know that theft is wrong. So the dignity of reason is one of the things we hold to as Catholics. And what that means is what God has commanded in the law we're able to figure out. So what connects these? Well, God. So God, um, God is a rational God. You know, the pagan religions had gods who did random things, were in a bad mood one day, did this, that, the other. Um, Christian God is a wise God, a loving God, a rational God. So what proceeds from him is his wisdom and reason. So when we have reason, we are partaking in the thinking of God. Okay, God is the creator. So, nature, when we look at nature, we are looking at what he has created. He is a rational being and he has created. So, what he has created, he's created rationally. So, when we look out at his world, we are seeing the handiwork of a rational being. And in particular, when I look at myself, when I look at human nature, I see a pattern, a structuring, a meaning that is in there because the Creator has made me and made me according to um, his, his reasoning. Okay, so we make it, think about law now. 
the scheme just went. So, if we think about what law, um, actually let me first say what law is. Um, so very simply, law is a, um, is a command. Do this, don't do that. Um, it's a command, or a whole series of commands. That's what we mean by a law. We don't just mean wise advice from someone who knows a lot, but we mean a command to do something. So what has God commanded? Well. What we can perceive in reason is what's called the natural law. In the mind of God, there's a thing we call the eternal law. So kind of in its fullness, God's intellect is obviously vastly beyond ours. But our partaking of it as rational beings, that's what we mean by the natural law being known to us. Right, so what is nature? Nature is what is. Yeah, now in philosophy, have you done metaphysics yet? Being qua being? We're doing it right now. Okay, what a thing is. That's what nature is telling you. So how should I behave as a human being? Well, when I look at my nature, when I look at what the is is about me, it reveals many things about how I should behave. Reason is able to look at what is and deduce various things and say, well, it's fitting, is a phrase that St. Thomas Aquinas will use. It's fitting. So. If I am a certain kind of being, it's fitting I should behave in a certain kind of way. And because God only ever commands things that are fitting, he's a perfect God, he doesn't command things that are not fitting. That for Thomas, the phrase, it is fitting, is pretty uh, final as an assessment. If he looks at human behavior and says it is fitting that we do such and such, then that must mean that's what God commands. God doesn't command us to do stupid stuff. He commands us to do what is fitting. So that, in short, is kind of the outline, the structure of what we're going to look at today. Let me map out one additional thing here. So you remember we talked about um, how God has made us with this desire for happiness. That there's a yearning within me, yearning for happiness. Well, philosophically, um, that all nature acts for its end. Every individual thing of a certain nature acts for the end of that thing. That tree has built into what it is an end, a goal, a striving that is gonna be its fulfillment. <sighs> that we yearn for fulfillment as rational beings also. And that God, um, you know, at the creation, when he makes all things, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. That yes, on one level, that is about numerically multiplying. But it's about God commanding us to be fulfilled, commanding that nature achieve what's been made to do. 
So if you can look at what you are and see that fulfillment looks like whatever, then that must be what God has commanded. God commands everything to achieve its end. So when we look at human activity, we can look at the end of certain activities, what fulfills them, and say, well, this is what God has commanded into the very structure of our being. Yep. Um, what do you mean by fulfillment exactly? Well, that is a very good question because we can make fulfillment to be an utterly selfish thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so part of what reason's job is, is to analyze what true fulfillment looks like. So if you remember when we talked about the difference between pleasure and joy, um, that analysis is part of the task of reason. So that it's not always obvious. Any other initial questions? So basically I'm going to spend the next hour unpacking this in greater detail. But this is the structure of what we're doing today. Okay, so let's turn to the lecture notes, starting on page one. So we're thinking today about the natural law Say so the natural law, what is it? It's the knowledge of right and wrong that we have by the light of unaided reason. So unaided reason. Um, I say, then I say unaided reason can know right and wrong. And clarify, unaided reason means reasoning without the aid of the Bible and Christian tradition. So let's pause for a second there. If you don't have the Bible, if you don't have the wisdom of the saints, if you don't have 2,000 years of Christian thinking and the Jewish thinking before that, that's what we mean by reason. Unaided reason, which is different from when you as seminarians are reasoning. Even when you don't think you are, you are using all of the bits of the Bible and tradition and wisdom that you've received from Christians. But when you do your philosophy class, the whole thing about philosophy, when it's strict philosophy, is that you're looking at what can be known without what we call supernatural revelation. And that's another way of saying we're looking at reason, unaided reason. What is unaided reason able to know? Okay, then say in Boulder, the natural law is the moral law available to the Gentiles, meaning the Gentiles before the Jews and the Christians got to them. Oh, it's the knowledge of morality accessible without supernatural revelation. Uh, Josh, can you read that text from Romans? So this text from Romans is basically the foundation in scripture of what we call the natural law. When Gentiles who have not the law of Moses do by nature what, excuse me, when Gentiles who have not the law of Moses do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. So there St. Paul is noting the fact that there are all these Gentiles who actually do all kinds of things that were in the law of Moses, in the Ten Commandments, and that they didn't need to have the Ten Commandments to already know that these various things were right and wrong. And St. Paul says, the law was written on their hearts. And this is possibly the most foundational expression of what we call the natural law. Somehow that it's written on your hearts which is in a metaphor. It doesn't mean literally if you open a Gentile's heart, you're going to find it written on there. 
um, but it's in your nature. That from creation, when humans are made, from the very beginning, this law was accessible, knowable to us by the light of reason. Now, if you're able to know it without the Bible, why do we need the Bible? Why did we need the Lord Jesus to come? Why did we need the prophets before him? So this is the question, sorry. This is the question St. Thomas Aquinas answers in the next set of, this little bullet point there. Could you read that first, Max? Why do we need supernatural revelation? Because without revelation, those truths about God which you reason could have discovered would have been known by few, and after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. So, if we take the model of the philosophers of ancient Greece as a glimpse of history, what can you figure out without the Bible? Well, the philosophers of ancient Greece didn't have the Bible, didn't know of Jesus, didn't know of the God of the Old Testament, but they were able to know an awful lot of things. But if we think of all of the people living in the ancient world, there were really only a few philosophers in ancient Greece. So without the Bible, the truth that can be known in practice is only known by a few people who have the, in a sense, the ability, the context to be able to do that deep thinking. Then only after a long time, to figure out truths that you're able to figure out is an instant. And then he says, with the admixture of many errors. So the Greeks had an awful lot of things right, but they had some things seriously wrong mixed in there as well. So, therefore, Jesus comes from heaven to earth the word of the Father comes and speaks to us. And even those things that we would have been able to know by reason, he comes and with utter clarity and fulfillment in what is called supernatural revelation, not just natural revelation that we see all the time. Um, God reveals his law. With me so far? Okay, bottom half of that page, I then just, summarizing what I've been saying, these words, reason, law, nature, what do they mean? So reason. Reason is what man can know even without the Bible and tradition and supernatural revelation. So I've said that a few times. Reason, we could also say, is the faculty proper to humans as the defining faculty natural to man. So what makes you different from the deer out there and the geese? It's, it's your reason. That's what we mean by reason. Law, what do we mean by law? What is decreed? The law isn't just what's in accord with reason, but what has been decreed as a command. And the Catechism, as you'd have read, says, God has given us this light or law at creation. So it's there in us from the very beginning. The nature, what things are, the the is of them, how God made them. In particular, what the human person is, i.e. human nature. So I think natural law means acting according to our human nature. So from your metaphysics class, hopefully already done, but you will do, that every nature acts according to its goal, to the fulfillment of its end. Everything is fulfilled by pursuing its end. And so there's this thing called practical reason, i.e. natural law morality, discerns how human nature indicates the manner in which a person must act to achieve his end. So the earlier question, well, what is fulfillment? Well, that isn't a simple yes or no kind of answer. This is the whole task of reason, philosophy, 
And within moral theology, the ability to know the law as reason can show up. Okay, what we need now is some examples, yes? So I've been talking about the principles. You need some examples to say what this looks like. So um, over the page, page two, two examples. So uh, example A and example B both on that page. And the first example I've taken from St. Thomas Aquinas, so this is in the Summa Theologica, and he doesn't say this is an example of a natural law argument, but actually he gives this argument and it is perfectly just that. So the question is religion, by which he means the exercise of worship to the Almighty, whatever you understand him to be, that this is just natural to us. You are a human being, therefore you should do worship. You should do acts of religion. Sam, can you read that block quote from the Summa for us? At all times and among all nations, there has always been the offering of sacrifices. Now that which is observed by all is seemingly natural. Therefore, the offerings of sacrifices is of the natural law. Natural reason tells man that he is subject to a higher being, and whatever his superior being may be, it is known to all under the name of God. Now just as natural things, the lower are naturally subject to the higher, so too it is a dictate of natural reason in accordance with man's nature, man's natural inclination, that he should tend submission and honor according to his mode, to that which is above man. Now the mode of benefiting to man is that he should employ sensible signs in order to signify anything because he derives his knowledge from sensibles. Hence, it is a dictate of natural reason that man should use certain sensibles by offering them to God in sign of the suggestion of honor due to him, like those who make certain offerings to their Lord in recognition of his authority. Now this is what we mean by a sacrifice, and consequently, the offering of sacrifice is of the natural law. Okay, so if we break that down in terms of this, what I've mapped out here, what is St. Thomas saying in that argument? Well, first he's saying, let's look at what nature, what is in the human person. He says, well, for one thing, you are inferior to God. You are subject to God. Now, if that is your nature, what does reason say you should do as a way of behaving? Well, he says you should show honour. And notice I've spelt it the American way. I'm learning. There's no you in there. Um, so, um, and he says, we look at all of human activity and we see that this is just always the pattern. That inferior humans show honour to those above them. It says, so that subjects make offerings to their lords. Now we may not have lords in the same way, but we can still see that pattern in our human existence. And so he says, it must be the case that there is therefore, from the Almighty, from the dawn of creation, a command of the natural law, I'm paraphrasing him here, thou shalt worship. So that's very basically how the structure of his argument is. What are humans? When we look at all of human existence, all of human history, what do we see in their behavior? Therefore, we can deduce how they should behave. And that is, therefore, the law written on our hearts. Right. 
Now, his argument is actually more specific than that. So he says, well, what are you? He says, you are a sensible creature. Yes, and I don't know if you've done this also in metaphysics. So how do you come to knowledge? This is actually epistemology through your senses. He's saying, what are you? You're not an angel. You know things through the senses. You do stuff through the senses. And he says, therefore, when you make honor, you should do it. It's fitting that you should offer sensible offerings. So you don't just say to your Lord, oh, Lord, you are a wonderful, wonderful king. Um, you offer him something physically because you are a physical, sensible being. So, if we look at human history, we see humans offering crop sacrifices, animal sacrifices. They offer sensible things. This is just what we do. And it flows out of what our nature is. So there must be written into our being a command of the natural law of the God of nature that we do such. Okay, we go back to my paper notes here and see how I've, I've made a series of five observations about St. Thomas's structure of argument there. So at first, he refers to existence, experience. He says, at all times, among all nations. So he uses experience. Second, he uses reasoning. So the existence of a higher being implies a lower being should behave. So, uses reasoning. Now, we won't do, really touch on this at this level of an introduction to moral theology, but he refers to man's natural inclination. And this is how we know what a thing is, by looking at what it's inclined to. So, that the tree is inclined to the sunlight and so forth. Um, the inclinations indicate what a thing is its nature. The, in, in, the inclinations indicate the end a thing is inclined towards. For I say he draws on a notion of what is natural to a being such as a human. That a human's nature is a lower being and a sensible being. So that reason can conclude he should show honour by sensible offerings. And fifth, I note he doesn't refer to Christ. Now, who is the perfect example of human worship? The Lord Jesus Christ, offering the worship to the Father on the cross, praying again and again in, in what's recorded in the Gospels. He doesn't refer to the Lord Jesus. Because if you refer to the Lord Jesus, it wouldn't then be reasoning you would be using. It would be the Bible, tradition, yeah, so this is an argument you can make without only using reason. It's an example, therefore, of that. And what this gives us is a foundation to say the command to worship God in the Mass, in prayer and union with Jesus, all of this isn't some random obligation that's been thrown on top of you. It was already in your nature. And when you look at your nature, you can see this in your very being. So that the perfection of human worship, uniting ourselves to the cross, uniting ourselves to the mass, the sensible offering of the mass, or bread and wine become the body and blood of the Lord as an offering to him, is that same structure, but raised up to, to a perfection. What this means is that one of the great importances of natural law analysis is our ability to see that what God has commanded us in the Bible and so forth just accords with our very being. So to put that earlier question in reverse, what is fulfillment? What is my end? 
well, actually, reason can partly show me. And actually, that when I look at the Bible, I just find that even more fully explained, even though it's the same thing explained. Okay, St. Thomas said, at all times and among all nations, there's always been the offering of sacrifices. Now, he'd never been to 21st century England, because if he had, he would have found pretty much a nation of people that have no concept of God and no awareness of any need to make an offering to anybody. And if he'd come to American culture, he'd have found here, the notion really of our egalitarianism, the thought of making honor to a superior being, is kind of pretty un American. So, what he's saying is true of all nations actually isn't quite true of all nations, but it's true enough of human history to say actually that looks like something that isn't just random but is actually a more authentic expression of human existence. Read with me what I've put in slightly smaller print under that point five. I say, the existence of a culture that did not offer worship to its God was probably unknown to St. Thomas. However, St. Thomas was aware that some cultures can be so corrupted that they fail to see what is natural. For example, he refers to theft as being something that the ancient Germanic tribes did not realize was wrong. And he says, in sum, by reason, the reason is perverted by passion or by evil habit or an evil disposition of nature. I say he would view such a culture as perverse I, just because the natural law can be known by all people does not mean that it is known by all people. Yes, now that's a very important distinction to, to note in terms of what we're talking about here. So just because you're capable of knowing something doesn't mean you do know it. And just because we say everybody in reason is capable of knowing this doesn't mean everybody does. So St. Thomas says that the general principles of the natural law are known by all people, but the conclusions and details are not. Maxim. Why couldn't the conclusions be known? Like they could be recognized, you mean, like, but it couldn't be known? Um, let me rephrase it. So there are some things that are so foundational you're not able to not know them. Right. Where there are other things, the conclusions, that you could know but you might not know. Is that? So everybody's able, well, no. The, the theft, everybody's able to know that stealing is wrong, but actually there are people that don't know. In particular, if you grow up in a culture where, you know, particularly I think historically, if you see this, any culture where you have a group of people that are repeatedly kind of suppressed, cast down, treated as outsiders, not really able to own things, they don't have a concept of property, and they therefore don't have a concept of theft. Okay, so that's one example of an argument of a natural law argument. B, what I've called a false argument. So I've heard this trotted out plenty of times, and even though people don't say natural law, they think they're doing a kind of natural law argument, even if they're not Catholic. So according to this argument, B here, homosexual intercourse is natural. And people will say things like this. They'll say, some animals can be observed to engage in anal sex. Some animals can occasionally be seen to have homosexual couples. And then I have 
three headlines from newspapers. Gay penguins steal eggs from straight couples. The love that daren't squawk its name. And born of gen flamingos, two loving daddies. Um, and, you know, what could be more gay than a pink flamingo? Um, so the newspapers are obviously reporting this, indicating or implying that because the animals are doing this, therefore it's natural to us. Yeah, that's the implication. Now, the point I say in bold there, however, natural law doesn't mean imitating the animals. That sex in humans has a significance beyond what's the case in animals. So yes, you could point to some animals, like swans, I think, mate for life. But generally speaking, the animals don't do all kinds of things that actually when we look at human existence seem very typical of us. So mating for life, when we look at all human history, is the norm. It is so much the norm that it is what reason can deduce is natural to us. So natural law doesn't mean imitating the animals. So when we're talking about nature and natural, we need to have a, a, a fairly nuanced, clear understanding of what we mean. Natural doesn't mean animal. It means what Aristotle would use by the word natural. Your nature, what you are. And in your different fields of behavior, what those are properly. No, what okay. Questions, comments? So just staying with that last example, um, homosexual behavior. So because again, you'll get this misused this way. Um, someone will say, well, that's just the way I am. I was born this way. Or you know, it's, I'm inclined to this. Well, a proper analysis of nature of what you are isn't just your subjective, personal feelings, but actually what you are as a human being, which is a more foundational set of inclinations than just what you personally feel attracted to. Because part of what reason can actually show pretty easily is that there are all kinds of things we're attracted to that actually aren't good for us, that actually don't fulfill us in pretty much any meaning of the word fulfillment. So that our inclinations need a pretty thorough analysis to know what is kind of the real me, the real human behavior, not just what I feel inclined, attracted to as an individual. So that's probably the, the biggest example of a, a false application of natural law reasoning. Questions, comments? I mean, it says that some animals can be observed to engage in anal sex, but that's even unnatural for animals though, right? You would say? I think I just, in this context, want to use a completely different use of the word natural. Um, that it almost doesn't matter what the animals are doing in this context. There isn't a should in an animal. There isn't an obligation in an animal. Um, there is behavior that is fulfilling for animals and behavior that is unfulfilling for animals. But they don't have a rational engagement with what God has commanded for should to kind of be meaningful. But isn't, isn't this talking about like nature according to each specific being? In terms of the natural law, the only being we're concerned with is human beings. Okay. 
But within a human being, I have many different activities I do. Each of those activities I can analyze in its nature. So what is the nature of eating? What is the end, the goal of eating? I can analyze that in terms of the nature of what it is, what reason indicates is a good way to eat or a bad way to eat, and therefore conclude what God must be commanding. So I can look at what my nature is, and without much difficulty, see that 10 donuts for breakfast is not in accord with my nature. That reason deduces it is not fitting to have 10 donuts for breakfast. And it must therefore be what God commands of me as a rational being with this constitution. When you're using natural, I guess precisely why it's a false argument is because it's using nature, but not natural law, because natural law applies to humans specifically. Right. Because of the rationality. Yes. Yes, because we are the only beings with a reason. Other questions? There are all kinds of ripple-on effects in terms of application of how this affects the way we do theology, the way we do civil government. So why does it make sense to have a law in government for marriage? Well, if you're a Bible-bashing Protestant, you'll say every time some bit of marriage law comes up, the Bible says we must have this Congress must pass it because the Bible says. Well, the problem with that argument is not everyone in this country believes the Bible. So why should a Bible law be imposed on everyone? Whereas, if what we're saying is what is in accord with human reason and nature, then actually that's true for all Americans, not just the Americans that follow the Bible. And therefore, it should be in the marriage laws of the country because it's rooted in something that isn't according to your subjective religious belief, but rooted in what is true of everybody's nature. Anyway, that's an aside, but just to kind of indicate there's lots of applications of this, not just in what we're talking about today. Okay, I briefly said that there are things everybody knows and there are things that only a few people know. Yeah? Even if they're capable of knowing. Well, let's map that out a bit more slowly on page three of the notes. So, um, page three the precepts of the natural law. So a precept is basically a complicated, fancy word for a law, a decree, a precept. So I say St. Thomas Aquinas' threefold division of the precepts is typically followed. So basically the, the, there's all kinds of laws out there. Well, you can divide them into three categories in terms of the things everybody knows and the things that only a few people figure out somewhere in between. So first we have what he calls the first, the common principles. So St. Thomas contrasts practical reason with speculative reason. So practical reason is speculative reason applied to action, to doing stuff. So speculative reason, two plus two makes four. Yes, that isn't about doing, that's just kind of knowledge in itself, speculative. But there is all kinds of knowledge about the doing of stuff. That's practical reason. Quoting here, he says, there are several first indemonstrable principles of speculative reason. Thus there are several first precepts of the natural law. Like the first principles of speculative reason, the first precepts are self-evident and indemonstrable. 
you cannot argue with someone who denies the principle of non-contradiction. You cannot argue with someone who denies the golden rule. That these first precepts are therefore, he says, repeat that word, self-evident. They are, quoting Romans, written on the heart. And with that, therefore, they cannot be blotted out of the human heart, even if you fail to observe them. So, examples, always examples. First precept he gives. The good is to be done and pursued, and the evil is to be avoided. So he says all other precepts are rooted on that basic. Good is that what is to be done. That's kind of almost stating the obvious. Um, B, he says there are other first precepts. And I say St. Thomas doesn't give a complete list of other first precepts, but he does give the example, do evil to no man. And we generally would give the, the golden rule among the first precepts. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now let's pause with that example for a minute. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How would you argue with someone who denied that? Well, uh, if I quote Father Brandon, he said to, uh, you can't, what did he say? You can't reason with unreasonable people. Yeah, okay. I laughed because I just thought, you punch him and say, did you like that? Did you do did you want me to do that? Right. Um, St. Thomas's basic point is actually you can't argue to it. It's by self-evident. We I mean, there are some things that are just self-evident. And if somebody is, usually in a philosophy class, pretending to be so stupid they don't get some basic principle, um, you can't really argue with it. Um, this is what we mean by something that is self-evident. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. That the good is that which is to be done. That we should do evil to no one. That these first principles, the other principles are based upon, these are self-evident. They're written on the human heart. Everybody knows them. Now, not everybody does it. We don't always do it. You know, do unto my neighbours as heaven do unto me. Um, well, I know that doesn't mean I do it. Yeah, so we're saying everybody knows it. It's self-evident, it's written on the heart. Okay, second what St. Thomas calls the secondary precepts or quasi-conclusions of the primary precepts. He says, these are derived immediately with little consideration from the first precepts. So St. Thomas teaches that the Ten Commandments are among the secondary precepts. So these secondary precepts can be blotted out of the human heart by gives three ways, as quoted earlier, by evil persuasions and false argumentation, by vicious customs and corrupt habits, thus the ancient Germans didn't know that theft was wrong, and the Greeks accepted unnatural vices by homosexual intercourse. So you're able to know these things, and it's not difficult to know them, but they are also capable of being blotted out of the human heart. So let's think, um, evil persuasions, vicious customs, and corrupt habits. So let's think of a teenage boy growing up in our culture with respect to pornography. So what is the custom around him that he receives as a custom? Well, in our culture, pornography, the viewing of pornography is normal and is proposed to them as normal. I'm presuming your schools here are the same as the UK schools now. They even have classes on the healthy use of pornography. Um, 
So although everybody is capable of knowing that the viewing of pornography, the objectifying of women, um, that this is wrong, you can grow up with a custom around you that prevents you seeing that truth. Then evil persuasions. So you might be a good Catholic boy as a teenager and you've grown up in a home where the custom around you isn't corrupt. But evil persuasions, your friends at school, your public school, they tell you other things. And the evil persuasions you listen to and you reach a stage where you no longer see the truth. Even though you're able to know it, but the evil persuasions stop you hearing, uh, stop you still seeing the truth. And then the last corrupt habits, your own behavior can stop you seeing the truth. So the good Catholic teenage boy knew from good customs what was the right thing to do, but he fell into a practice of you in pornography and did it habitually and reached that stage where his thinking, his ability to judge right and wrong became so clouded that his own habits prevented him knowing right and wrong anymore. He's able to know it and with the light of grace, the call of conversion, he's able to change but he can reach a stage where his own bad habits have so clouded his ability to think that he doesn't just do what's wrong, he no longer sees that it is wrong. So St. Thomas is saying there's a whole category of things here that yes, there are these things that are self-evident, everybody knows they're written in the heart, but then there are all these other things, including the Ten Commandments, that you're capable of knowing, and they're not difficult to know, but it is possible not to know. And then finally, the third category, proximate conclusions or conclusions. These are derived by demonstrations from the secondary precepts and prudence is needed to discern the more remote conclusions. So what would be an example of this? Is cheating in exams wrong? Everybody's nodding their head because they know I'm going to mark their papers very soon. Um, now, when I was in Rome, studying amidst Italians, one of the things that would sometimes shock um, the, the Anglo-Saxon um, students would be these good Italian nuns who thought it was fine to cheat in exams. Um, you know, these were... In habits, young, devout um, Italian nuns, but in their culture, cheating is just normative. Um, so that's a fairly remote conclusion, cheating in exams. It's much more remote than theft and murder. Um, but there are lots of things that we can fail to know, even though we're capable of knowing. I think that's just an example. Okay, so in summary, bottom of the page, what do I say? St. Thomas says that the general principles of the natural law are known by all people, but the conclusions and details are not known by all. Any comments before we move on? No. Okay, page four. So I've said this already, but the Ten Commandments are part of the natural law. So quoting uh, St. Thomas at the top of the page, all the precepts of the old law, he says, are so many parts of the precepts of the Decalogue. Either Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, contains all of the moral law as different parts of it. 
or that the moral law is all different parts of the Ten Commandments. So if we just read those two um, quotes from the Catechism on this point, Pat, can you read the first? The Ten Commandments belong to God's revelation. At the same time, they teach us the true humanity of man. They bring light to the essential duties and therefore indirectly the fundamental rights inherent to the nature of the human person. The Decalogue contains a privileged expression of the natural law. From the beginning, God had implanted in the heart of man precepts of the natural law. Then he was content to remind him of them. This was the Decalogue. And Nick, could you read the next one? The commandments of the Decalogue, although accessible to reason alone, unaided reason, have been revealed to attain a complete and certain understanding of the requirements of the natural law. Sin sinful humanity needed this revelation. A full explanation of the commandments of the Decalogue became necessary instead of sin because a lot of reason was obscured the whale had gone astray. So that's basically the catechism saying what I think I've already said. The Ten Commandments are part of the natural law. You're able by reason alone to know the Ten Commandments. But I note a problem there. How can unaided reason discern that we must keep the Sabbath, that's the third commandment, if the Sabbath is a matter of revelation? Yeah, how do you know about the Sabbath except from the Bible? So we're saying reason can tell you you need to observe the Sabbath. So basically what the philosophers say is that within each of the Ten Commandments there's a kind of core of it that is reason that then gets fleshed out in supernatural revelation. So in that example, reason is able to figure out, in, as we had in this example, that you must worship God and reason can also figure out that you must worship him on a regular basis. But the exact detail of a seven-day week, reason alone can't figure that out. That's a detail, a clarification that comes to us from the Bible. As a matter of interest as a slight bit of speculation. Um, don't know if you know that the communists tried to abolish the seven-day week yeah, as part of their attempt to eradicate um, the heritage of Christianity. Uh, one of their attempts was to have a seven, a ten-day week. You know, anything but a different number from what we had. Um, and they found it didn't work that actually there was somehow something in the seven-day structure of the rest pattern that humans need, that ten days didn't really work. We couldn't build a society on a ten-day week. Now, that would be much harder to prove just by reason, just by philosophy. But I think there's a glimmer there that the commandments of God aren't random. Any questions on that? Just, just kind of spell that. Honouring your father and mother, you don't need the Bible to know that that's, that's a requirement, a duty. Not stealing, not murdering, not lying. You, you know, the, just reason can figure these things out. And obviously built into that is the fact philosophy can figure out that there is a God. So philosophy has to kind of figure that out before philosophy can then say, and how should we behave towards him? We must honour him with offerings. Okay, so if I take 10 minutes to quickly read through the next two pages, and these pages are pretty much just summarizing what I've already been saying. Okay, page 5.1. The natural law, why is it natural? Well, we, it's natural because all people are 
naturally capable of knowing it. This law is called natural not in reference to the nature of irrational beings, but because reason, which decrees it, is properly belongs to human nature. Now then phrase it this way. Birds are naturally able to fly. Fish are naturally able to swim. Well, humans are naturally able to know the moral law, to know right from wrong. See, but no, not all people achieve what they're naturally capable of, just as a wounded bird might fail to fly. In the next bullet point I say, all of the ethical laws of Christianity are capable of being known by non-Christians. That's a kind of important summary application of that. So anything we're saying is a matter of command from God. Actually, everybody's capable of figuring that out. Point two. The natural law is natural because it accords with our nature, what I am as a human being. The natural law is called natural because the moral law is not an external imposition, but it accords with our nature and fulfills us. Now, the Catechism, as you would have read, interestingly quotes Cicero on this. Now, Cicero, if you remember, he's a pagan. But he's saying what reason can say, because he's a pagan that knows reason. And the Catechism thinks he's worth quoting on this point. Cicero says, For there is a true law, right reason. It is in conformity with nature, it is diffused among all men, and is immutable and eternal. An important consequence. If all humans have reason, then it follows that all humans are called to follow the same moral law because they all possess the same human nature. For example, theft, murder, abortion, they are immoral for all humans in every country, in every culture, for all humans in every era of history. According to the Catechism, the natural law is immutable and permanent throughout the variations of history. It subsists under the flux of ideas and customs and supports their progress. The rules that express it remain substantially valid. Even when it is rejected in its very principles, it cannot be destroyed or removed from the heart of man. It always rises again in the life of individuals and societies. And elsewhere, the natural law is written and engraved on the soul of each and every man, because it is human reason ordaining him to do good and forbidding him to sin. Now, one of the reasons we need to hold on to this thought of the, the natural law being immutable is that pretty much since the Enlightenment, we've had humans going around saying, oh, we are now so superior to past civilizations. You know, we are the enlightened. We have reason now. Um, and then went on and had the... First World War and the Second World War, and you know, all these, but this claim nonetheless is still out there that, well, we are better people now. And you know, so much of politically correct thinking is, is rooted in the same thought that, that we're better than the peoples before us. And you, know, you don't need to read too much history to see that that just is a pretty hard position to sustain when you compare how we're actually behaving. So that the law for us isn't different from what it was 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. In different eras of history, we know it more or less, but it isn't an ever-increasing knowing it more and more and those bad Christians, we've advanced beyond them now. So did you have your hand up at the back? So. No? Okay. Okay, over the page. Okay, some of this 
or pretty much all of this I've said already. Um, so point three, top of page six. This is a bit more technical. If we were doing many weeks on natural law, we'd flesh this out in more detail, but I'm just gonna say it briefly here. Um, natural law is natural because we can use a posteriori, a posteriori reasoning from facts of nature to the moral laws. So when St. Thomas was looking at human history and saying all cultures and all time behave this way, he was making a fact from experience and deducing a moral law from it. So that's what this is saying here. So first, some valid is ought arguments. One, man is naturally inferior to God. Thus he is morally obliged to worship God. Two, man is naturally social. Thus he's morally obliged to love. Now that argument I said in one sentence, you can see you need to flesh that out a bit, but it wouldn't be difficult to flesh out, to see, well, what are human beings in my nature? I'm not made as a solitary being. I'm communal, I'm social. Therefore, I must have an obligation to, to love my neighbor. From what is the case to what ought to be the case. Invalid it is also arguments. First. If a man was meant to fly, he'd have been born with wings. Yes, that obviously doesn't follow. Um, two, the natural tendency of stupid people to harm themselves implies we should put all of them out of their misery. So starting from looking at what is the case and just making a completely false jump from what ought to be. Three, this is a more subtle one. Nothing could be less natural than a plastic hip joint. Thus, hip operations are contrary to the natural law. So there's an English philosopher called Mary Warnock who mocked the Catholic Church using that as an argument. Now, the point is that artificial isn't the same thing as unnatural. So my glasses are artificial, but they actually work with my nature. They are actually restoring my nature to its function. So artificial doesn't mean unnatural. Artificial things and all kinds of things in human existence, actually we make them to further the functioning of, of our nature, to restore the functioning of our nature. Okay, I think I'm going to leave that there. Page seven of the notes is just repeating what I did with you in lecture one when we talked about reason and experience as a source of moral theology, how we study. So what have we looked at today? Three things, nature, reason, law. They all come from the one God, therefore they're all related. Nature, what we mean is looking at reality and figuring how reality and within me, the different activities of my nature, how they are fulfilled. Reason deduces from nature what is fitting behavior. And that is, by definition here, what we mean by the law that God has commanded in the natural law, the dawn of creation by giving us the light of reason.